sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is Lou Elizondo and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and welcoming on this interview I have retired CIA officer who served within the agency from 1984 to 2009, serving within the Directorate of Science and Technology, the Directorate of Intelligence and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I have Mr John Ramirez. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Andy, thank you for having me. No, thank you. Thank you for giving me some of your time. Uh, listen, John, I have a lot of questions for you, not just for myself, but when I said you were coming on, uh, the audience got in touch and they drove. So we've got a lot to get through. Yeah. And uh, you've done a couple of interviews recently with uh, Witness Citizen, Sean Rash and Jay from Project Unity. And there was so much off the back of those people have wanted to follow up on or get further thought thoughts from you or for you to elaborate. So let's see what we can get through in the in the time that we have. John, the first question I have to ask you, as no doubt many people have already tried to online, for those who question your legitimacy and your background, how yes. do you go about proving who you are, if you indeed have to? It's practically impossible for a CIA officer to prove that they were in CIA. It's easier when you are in CIA. You can actually contact CIA and get an employment verification for serving officers. But once you leave, my file goes over to the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, which is the personnel office for all federal employees, whether they're active or retired. So it's impossible uh, due to privacy concerns. It's very difficult to um, verify anything. So it's basically just uh, relying on like what I say, if it rings true, um, but otherwise, as far as getting documents, I mean, I can produce all kinds of documents, but people will always say that I photoshopped it or I made it up. So uh, I'm, at a, I'm at a loss here. What I did, though, was actually had W-2s from CIA. And in the U.S., uh, for audiences not familiar with the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS W-2 verifies your employer. And there is an ID number for that employer. Every employer has a unique ID number. So that ID number, my name and my address at my very last paycheck was sent to a government officer who is a Navy security officer. And they were able to verify that I was indeed who I said I was. I also produced correspondence 
from uh, people you know, for example, Louis and uh, Jim Simivan. And so, look, here it is. You know, they know who I am. Um, if you ask them directly, um, I had no qualms about them verifying that I am who I say I am. So um, other than that, I mean, there's very little to show because we don't have social media um, mm-hmm. social media accounts while we were serving. We, we serve, you know, silently. We don't want our, our identities to be known. And also, um, uh, while we're serving, uh, it, it's probably um, very difficult to um, get anyone else to prove through photographs or whatever. I had one photograph of me getting a promotion award. But again, someone could say, oh, you photoshopped it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm at a loss here. I don't know how to prove anything. Um, is that frustrating? Is it, do you find that I, frustrating? I don't that you find frustrating because I know who I am. I mean, the frustration is on those who don't know who I am, so I can understand that. Uh, but, I mean, the shortcut would have been so someone to ask Louis uh, or Jim Simivan to just say, do you know John Ramirez and is he who he say, say he is? Maybe some people have already. I'm sure they'll get yeah. in touch. Um, John, can you tell us a bit about your background with the CIA? Uh, I don't know where to start about that. Um, I joined in 1984. Uh, preface that, that I had uh, six years in the Navy in the electronics warfare field. Um, and there I was collecting microwave signals of um, emissions around me, like other ships, uh, a- aircraft that were near the ship. And so there I learned about electronic intelligence, analyzing signals, uh, identifying signals, and that particular skill, and also jamming signals, and that particular skill was very useful for CIA. But uh, I needed a four-year degree, so I went to George Washington University to get that four-year degree in political science. Not a physicist, not a scientist, not an engineer, political science. But because of my technical skills in the Navy, I was hired into a technical position And so I saw before I finished college at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., I saw an ad in a newspaper uh, advertising for those with military SIGINT backgrounds to apply. And I did. And so after about uh, close to a year of vetting of uh, very stringent background investigations, uh, FBI talking to neighbors and friends, uh, going through a grueling polygraph, which is called a full scope polygraph, they get into uh, intimate details of your life, um, including uh, sexual habits, which are very uncomfortable to talk about. Sure. But basically, CIA uh, says, you know, we you're going to learn the innermost secrets of the United States government. In exchange, we want to know your innermost secrets. We also want to know if you have any secrets for which you might be blackmailed. Are you vulnerable to blackmail? We want to know that. And they're non-judgmental. Um, they really are. And they just want to know that uh, everything about you so that if you are blackmailed, you'll say, oh, I don't care. Blackmail me. CIA already knows all about this. Um, and so I joined uh, in the Office of SIGINT Operations in the Directorate of Science and Technology. I was assigned um, the ballistic missile defense account, uh, anti-ballistic missile radars and systems. And these are the missiles to shoot down other missiles. And so I learned a lot about that and uh, anti-satellite weapons. I got a lot of that information there and I went on technical operations. So that's how I entered CIA. 
Now, something that's come up, um, and I am no expert in, in the US government, let alone any government, okay? I just sit and ask questions. Something that came up, uh, and I would like you to explain, because I saw some chatter around it, is to do with the pay grade GS15. Now, yes. this is something that I've seen, uh, it was brought up by by Jay on his interview with you, that was excellent on the Project Unity channel. And I've seen someone comment that GS15 is a pay grade and doesn't necessarily re- relate to the complexity of the role. And the example, which may be quite crude, but I would love for you to clear up, is GS15 could technically be janitorial. Is that correct? Or could yes, you elaborate on that? Uh, our, our janitorial staff came first from Allied uh, Maintenance. They collected all of the trash uh, cleaned uh, the hallways, uh, also uh, picked up, um, well, they, they also pretty much picked up everything uh, that ne- needed to be cleaned. They also provided uh, cafeteria services. Later, the cafeteria services went to Sodexo Marriott uh, for cafeteria services and the janitorial staff. They're basically on a wage grade, uh, wage earners. So they're under contract and they're not general schedule. All general schedules or GS are professional positions. Mm-hmm. So saying the GS15 is a janitor is someone who is basically trying to, uh, I would guess, uh, kind of denigrate my, my reputation. Uh, in fact, Louis was a GG15 and a GG, uh, is for the defense intelligence agency and other defense positions. Mm-hmm. GS is for regular, like mostly government and mm-hmm. also CIA. So if you look at it, um, go look at a GS-15 pay scale. And my last pay, my last paycheck was $136,000, $136,900 a year. I was making $66.65 an hour. You don't pay janitors that. And again, that's something else that was on my W-2 form. I was going, you took the words out of my mouth that I doubt many janitors are earning that kind of money. And if they are, send the application form my way. That would be great. Uh, Listen, in this subject over the decades, John, the word disinfo or disinformation agent is thrown around, and I'm sure you've heard that. What would you say to people who think you would be a prime candidate for this sort of accusation, given your recent exposure to the community? And also, to be honest, as we're going to discuss, the extraordinary nature of some of the claims. Right. Um, a disinformation agent is a person who knows the real information and then twists it uh, according to some policy, um, a deliberate policy of the government. So um, I would say that a disinformation agent is someone who is uh, working to uh, introduce false information into a narrative in order to affect the decisions or policies or beliefs of another government, not people. It was not legal. People would not realize this, but it is not legal for the CIA officer to be a disinformation officer against his uh, or her own country. And there are people who are trained to do this, but they're there to affect the plans and policies of another government. And in fact, that's a very dangerous um, uh, avenue to to uh, dive into because uh, what they're doing is basically uh, introducing false information to try to convince people to think differently. And so um, it's mostly in the open source intelligence field that they would like uh, throw in, throw out something 
to influence, for example, um, uh, like say a support for a certain candidate overseas. You know, they might they might throw out something that uh, uh, would persuade people not to vote for a certain candidate because yeah. they want the candidate that supports the U.S. government to to come into uh, office. So, I mean, I admit that the CIA does that. It is not rogue. It's not unlawful. The uh, National Security Act and uh, various amendments to that, as well as uh, various presidential executive orders, allow for certain types of covert action to take place overseas. So disinformation is part of a covert action plan to influence, deter uh, some action of another government. Now, John, I appreciate you clearing some of that up right off the bat, but that's things that have obviously come up from from those previous interviews, and I wanted to get that out in the open straight away, so I do appreciate those answers. John, now, what is your experience with the world of UFOs and UAP? Now, not that it was necessarily part of your job, but growing up, did you have any sightings, experiences, or just a general general interest? It's not a general interest. Um, I had it since I was four years old. Um, and that was when I first looked through a telescope and I had this profound sense that I was not a part of this planet, that I belonged out there somewhere in the stars. And that's pretty remarkable for a four-year-old. But if you talk to experiencers, that seems to be like the age when it happens. And then thereafter, uh, at five and six, uh, I said this before, I had experiences of, of being led into a house by a woman who was not my mother and being examined by a doctor and a doctor and a nurse. And this happened over successive times where I was reassured, don't worry, we're not going to hurt you. We just want to um, see if you're okay. We just want to give you an examination. And I've had similar experiences throughout my life where, you know, I experienced being taken because I wanted to be. Um, I experienced uh um, looking through a telescope when I was small and, and seeing the Andromeda galaxy and having an instant connection with someone out there and wondering, why don't you pick me up? You left me on this planet. I don't know why I'm here. Um, being taken on board a craft um, and being examined on board a craft. And then uh, when I woke up the next morning, there were markings on my body uh, that looked like they were examining me. Um, so, I've had many such experiences, uh, even even recently. I've, I've had experiences here in Arizona where um, when I moved to Arizona, uh, a being came to me and said, don't worry, we, we know you moved. We can always find you. Uh, we found you and we just want to find see if you're okay. So that's if you talk to experiences, this is not strange. Um, and the, the beings I see are more... Um, I don't like to use the word reptilian because people think of snakes and lizards. They're not snakes and lizards. They're more like uh, evolved, uh, like saurian beings. I call them saurian. Uh, they're more like humanoid with mixture of saurian. Um, it's the bipedal, two arms, you know, a head, two two eyes, uh, mouth, and so forth. You know, like but they're flesh and blood, as far as I can tell. And so these are the beings I, I interacted with. Some people see mantis beings. Um, there are all kinds of beings that people see. But if you talk to experiencers, um, they are adamant that these experiences are real and they have a profound effect on their life. Uh, mostly positive. Sometimes you get some disturbing kind of experiences with these beings. 
Um, and I don't, I've never had a disturbing experience like that. So it's just something that's occurred. And, and I took that with me to CIA. I mean, I've talked to other experiencers at CIA saying that they don't know why they were there. I mean, they seem to be drawn to it. I was always interested in intelligence at a young age. And I was just drawn to work at CIA. And others seem to have the same kind of, of compulsion. It's, and I use the example, like the uh, close encounters of the third kind. People were like obsessing over the devil's tower uh, structure, you know, going to the devil's tower. Um, and they didn't know why they needed to go, but they did. And so CIA is like, kind of like a magnet for that. No, that, that's amazing for you to share that. And we have spoken on the podcast in the last five or six weeks to to various different experiencers. We allowed them to come on, share their story. And you hear, like you say, how it impacts them throughout their whole lives. Sometimes it's a consistent experience. Other times it can go away, depending on different aspects of what's going on in their lives. Did you find your experience was consistent throughout your life? Or was there any prolonged stage where nothing was happening at all? Uh, it's not like an everyday thing. I mean, no, it's it's like they come see me when they need to. Um, and it seems like uh, every time they see me, I get some kind of information or download, I call it. Experiences call them downloads. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you, you, you get some insight into who they are and what their message is. And so I use the example um, like uh, I know you have a UK audience, so. Um, everyone in the UK knows what a lorry is and for us folks, it's a truck. Yeah. So, you know, some people, um, you know, are concerned whether the lorry was red or yellow, by the way, that was a great band. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Red and yellow lorry. Uh, I'm into the eighties. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people people, uh, are interested in the lorry. Some people are interested in the driver of the lorry. Some people are interested in what makes the lorry move like the engine. And then the, yep. the, the the delivery person drops off a box. And some people are interested in the box. They shake it and measure it and weigh it. And But the experiencers and the channelers, they're the ones that bother to open the box to see what's in it. What are the gifts in it? What is the message? So more about the message uh, than the craft at all. I, I've seen like orbs. Um, I know the crafts exist deep inside. I know when the government says that there are no UFOs, that Roswell was uh, like some old Cold War test um, of some old uh, project. I know that that can't be true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that that um, throughout uh, my experience, uh, I, there's there's been validation of what I feel, and I go with that validation. Now I'm not asking anyone to believe it. I know they're skeptics. And I, I love skeptics. It's good to be a skeptic. It's good to question. What disturbs me are um, what I call uh, uh, the folks who know the information, but still, because of some policy or some plan or just out of spite, um, they just throw in all kinds of garbage, even though they know the truth. And those are the debunkers. I, I don't like debunkers at all at all. Uh, I categorize debunkers differently from skeptics. And I I truly honor skeptics. I I love skeptics. They they need to be there because they need to like set the boundaries of what our beliefs and what our experiences are with this phenomenon. But debunkers, they're just troublemakers, in my opinion. 
So um, I don't like debunkers, but skeptics I love. You've touched on some wonderful conversation points, and I am going to swing back to those as we go on in the conversation. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned the the polygraph test yes. uh, that you, you have to go through in the CIA. Was your experience brought up during that? Is that something that you had to divulge, or did you no. divulge? The the uh, the polygraph test was designed for first of all counterintelligence. Um, the biggest concern is: Are you now have you before or will you work for a foreign intelligence service? That's the biggest concern because we don't want to hire people who are actually working on behalf of a foreign government to spy against the United States. Um, and first of all, all CIA officers and anyone in the U.S. government holding a security clearance are all U.S. citizens. But has there been any incident in your life or any occurrence where a foreign intelligence service has encouraged you to get a job like this so that you can report back to that intelligence service for compensation, for money, for goods and services? Um, so that's the primary concern. The second is, is there anything in your life that a foreign intelligence service, if they knew this one thing in your life that's so embarrassing to you, uh, can they use that to blackmail you so that you will work for them in order to protect that embarrassing thing in your life? And for a long time, it was sexual preference mm -hmm. um, when that was a stigma in society. And in the 1990s, that's all disappeared. That's all gone. So at CIA, we have all kinds of uh, representations of society. You know, regardless of sexual preference, gender preference, regardless of your gender expression, even um, there's transsexuals at CIA. I mean, it's not a big stigma anymore. Yeah. But what is still a big stigma is working for a foreign intelligence service like the SVR, for example, the the Russian service. What I'd like to ask is on that talking about the the intelligence community at large. Now, recently, DNI Avril Haines spoke about the UAP at the Ignatius Forum and mentioned the word, and this is difficult to say, extraterrestrially. Yeah. Uh, can, can you speak about the impact that using that language has had or could have on the intelligence community or the CIA? And do people appreciate the gravity of the language now being used? I'm speaking as a private citizen now. I wish I knew what it was like at CIA. But, I mean, the folks who know at CIA who know what's going on, the folks at DIA, in the intelligence community, in the military intelligence community, and the contractor community who work this issue, um, for them it's no, no big news. It's mostly uh, an acknowledgement by the U.S. government that, um, you know, these are these aren't weather balloons. These aren't temperature aversions. This isn't the planet Venus or all the other excuses that the government used to hide the fact that these are real craft or these are real phenomena happening in our skies. So that was the impact of it. It opened up the door to have an honest discussion, um, extraterrestrial discussion, or I call it exo discussion of the, 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 uh, the fact of that uh, there could be and very likely are uh, pilots or some means of, of propulsion uh, remotely from a mothership that is propelling what we're seeing uh, in our skies. And so that was a very important fact. And the fact that she said that um, pretty much um, also took away 
the other story that people believe that they believe in the craft, but they believe the craft is a representation of some advanced technology in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be, and there might be advanced technology in the U.S., but also don't discount the fact that that there is an extraterrestrial, there might be an extraterrestrial uh, reason for why we're seeing the craft. It's not just U.S. technology. So that's uh, the impact it had. It, it opened up doors to, to where we can actually talk about the ET, which which is right, and you make a really good point that I've I've mentioned before, John. That even if we find that there's a picture or video of a black triangle somewhere or a saucer shaped craft, and it turns out to be U.S., Russian, or Chinese, that still begs a lot of questions as to where has that technology came from. That's that's some leap going from you know jet engines to anti gravity all of a sudden. So there still could be a lot of extraterrestrial basis as to where that technology came from in the first place, which for me is fascinating still. Yeah. And you know, it's all, I go back to Roswell. Let's take Roswell, for example. Um, If I was uh, the rancher, Max Braswell, I think his name was, if I was that rancher, um, I would not have gone to the government. I would not have gone to the base and announced, I got this debris here. Please clean it up. I would have gone to like the University of New Mexico or, or uh, Mexico State University. I would have gone to academia, get scientists on it. So I got something strange here. But it was the Cold War. And so yeah. there were a lot of things happening during the Cold War. Uh, this is New Mexico. This is where uh, the first atomic tests occurred at Trinity. Um, I imagine what our history would be like if he did not go to the government, he went to academia and got civilian scientists, academics, looking at that debris. Uh, We would not be here today um, pondering the question. We would know the answers. But instead, the government came into play and did not allow even academia at that point to even examine it. So I go back to that. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the way it occurred. But now... Um, I, it seemed like there was a way, had that occurred, that the government could take from even a civilian study, the government could extract, well, since the civilian uh, examination of the craft would have been open, you know, academically open, the government could have taken from that academically opened uh, investigation, whatever technology or whatever materials they needed to do their own, you know, secret program. While leaving that craft intact for for the rest of us, and the fact that it landed in the United States, I, I firmly believe that um, if it came from space, um, the United Nations now says that we no country can claim anything in space for its own sovereign claims. You know, so if a craft comes from space and lands in United States territory or China or Russia, um, that craft belongs to the whole world. If they're signatories to the that United Nations Outer Space Treaty, that it doesn't belong to one country, but uh, sovereign nations being what they are, they tend to claim it for their country, and I think that's part of the problem. And so I'm um, very heartened that the Gillibrand Amendment, the amendment to the original amendment uh, about. Uh, um, 
opening up a office, and I think in the Gillibrand Amendment, it's called the uh, Anomaly Surveillance and Resolution Office. Yes. And resolution is the most important word in there because resolution means we're going to get down to like, what is it? Why are they here? Who's driving them? We're going to try to solve this this mystery. Um, And I'm heartened that there is a provision in the law the states, the United States government must share its information with other countries and that the government is now uh, beholden uh, or to the government. Um, I should say the government is beholden to Congress, representatives of the United States people, to uh, report to Congress what progress has been made in sharing that information with all these other countries. And it seems like everything happens in the U.S., but I mean, Latin America, there's a lot of, you know, all over the world, in Asia, in Europe, and in, in even in the U.K., people are seeing things. Um, so it's not just a U.S.-only phenomenon. It seems like we talk so much about the U.S.-only phenomenon, but it's happening everywhere. But these governments need to, like, talk to each other. And now, if this passes by law, Congress can then demand the U.S. government you must cooperate. You must tell us how you are cooperating with these other countries. So that's a that's a big big leap forward. You used the word heartened, and and as we speak, the the vote is still. I don't even think it's going ahead yet. It's there's been a lot of updates going on throughout today as we record this. But it's nice to see that it's been co-sponsored by at least five senators now. Mm-hmm. Um, so other people, regardless of their party and political leanings, are putting their name to this, and hopefully that that pushes things forward a little bit more. John, you've suggested uh, previously on an interview that everything that's happened from 2017 onwards as potentially controlled dissemination. Can you elaborate on this? Is it something you suspect or something you know is happening? The controlled dissemination has happened from at least, can only speak from 1984, because that's when I actually got clearances. Uh, Controlled dissemination has been happening for decades. Um, and before it was just mostly denial, if anything. And slowly, as um, we learn that what people are seeing correlated to what we were collecting in terms of our sensor capabilities, that it's, it was time to start easing up on this information. It originally happened through the entertainment industry. Um, why, where CIA had a office, an entertainment li- liaison office, to seed certain ideas in certain science fiction scripts that this was a reality. So that was very slow. It's like an atomic energy kind of uh, or nuclear uh, power plant uh, analogy is that a, nu- a nuclear power plant in the core, there's control rods. And if you lift all the control rods up, are you going to get a chain reaction? And fortunately, the um, fizzle material is not high enough of grade to actually cause an explosion, but you're going to get a very fast chain reaction. So they put the control rods down and they lift up different control rods, gauge how the public feels about that. And so, okay, we have, you know, we have some consensus that there is an alien presence and their UFOs are real. Because the surveys uh, decades ago pretty much 
majority of American citizens, at least, believe that UFOs were real. And so then you lift up more control rods and then you add more information into the the uh, public domain. And so um, within the government itself, I would say the big control rod was that was lifted was when uh, we were able to put electro-optical sensors on our satellites. And when I say electro-optical, I'm meaning in the infrared region. And so when you put infrared uh, sensors, uh, originally what we call four band or four color, most recently eight band or eight color, um, hyper, uh, they're now hyperspectral, originally multispectral four band sensors. Um, at that time, uh, we saw the, the presence of orbs. Uh, like these aren't like solid craft, these are energy orbs. And what are they? They're flying in formation, as I said before, in other uh, calls, they're flying in formation under intelligent control with intent to go to some destination. So that's really what sparked it. And it was in the, I think, 92, uh, it was Keenan, Keenan 11, uh, KH, Keenan KH 11 block two, where the first uh, IR sensor went on board that. And I could say that because NRO released the fact of that the Keenan or KH 11 spacecraft carried electro-optical sensors before that was protected under Byman. They got rid of Byman, so I can say that, and then I saw it in a brochure. Uh, so as these sensors became more sophisticated, um, we were able to actually see the presence of orbs in our skies all over the world. Um, and so that then started this working group, I said, uh, under uh, with Jay, this working group process started. This is before all SAP. Uh, don't even think that everything started with all set. The government no, sure. this long time ago, decades before, as these sensors came online. And so there was a serious uh, working group to actually study these sensors and to eliminate right off the bat that there were any kind of adversarial technology. That was already off the plate. And so they looked at it as th this is an unexplained aerial phenomenon. Now, here, here's a good test um, for your audience. When do you think, in your own mind, when did you learn UAPs versus UFO? It used to be UFO, 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 all of a sudden UAP. When was that? Who seeded that in your mind? Go back there, and that's the answer as to when the government started, like, releasing more control rods. Because before... A flying object is sort of like a, a solid, you know, nuts and bolts craft, right? Yeah. But an aerial phenomenon is, not, it can include that plus other manifestations of some kind of means of travel, which might be non-metallic in nature. So when you've heard of UAP first, go back and find out when was the first instance that anyone's ever heard the term UAP versus UFO. And then that's, that's when you learn that that's when the government, again, to your point, you know, introduce more information, lifted up the control rods. 2017, those videos, um, that really like, <laughs> that was, that really kicked things off. Um, before 2017, did you know who Louis Elizondo was? No. You ever heard of ASAP or even ATIP? Forget about the alphabet soup debates. Yeah. 
Uh, forget about the debate. Uh, it's the concept that the government was actually studying this in earnest. Um, have you ever heard that before 2017? No. You haven't heard any of that. Um, so, I mean, that's on an accelerated schedule now. Now, you brought up a couple, again, of really interesting points. It's almost like you can read the questions I've got next. So splitting this into into two, two aspects, one of the big barriers to those, the general public on the outside for from getting so involved in this subject is the quality of imagery as evidence. What are the best quality of images you have either seen or heard of being available at the highest levels? And I suppose it's an obvious question, but are we as the public getting the best possible quality images and videos of UAPs that would they have? It's amazing. Um, I was at Starworks USA this past weekend, and there is a, a researcher from Mexico, um, Jaime Massan, and he showed videos of images that are remarkable. Citizen science, I call it images from just ordinary people. As far as the government goes, I have never seen any image of an actual nuts and bolts craft. I have seen orbs. And the orbs are just like any other orb. It's just light. Usually around 600 nanometers, I personally seen a 600 nanometer uh, orb from an aircraft flying to California. Um, and it's orange. 600 nanometers is orange. Some people see other colors, but I see orange. Um, so from officially, it was just similar to that. Orb has no, like, no sense of, it has a shape, but sometimes the shapes can change. That's called signature management. Mm -hmm. um, and the shapes can change a little bit, but it still maintains an orb-like like, uh, shape. And so what you see as orbs, what people have sh uh, shot with their own cameras is basically what I saw. I would love to see that 23-minute video that Louis teased because I'm, I'm waiting for that as well. So, no, I haven't seen, like, craft, but I've seen orbs, officially seen orbs. What have you heard through the grapevine as to what others may have seen? There must have been conversation, like you say, if you've got people within the CIA who are themselves experiencers, I imagine there are those within the CIA who have access or have heard about images or videotape that in turn they, they talk about. I've never, I've never uh, officially seen anything or talked to anyone officially mm -hmm. about any kind of objects at all, or even even beings officially, I have talked to my colleagues, friends, uh, office mates. Yeah, that say, "Oh yes, you know, I, I've seen uh, craft. I've seen it in my, with my own eyes." And there were employees of NSA. There were employees of CIA. Um, those are the two agencies that I had most interacted with. Not so much DIA but mostly NSA and CIA because of my position, my job. Um, and they they will tell you once you have their confidence that they've seen and experienced other beings, they experience being taken, they experienced uh, all of that. And so from that level, I know that other people in the community, but as far as officially, um, the only official thing is something I'm working on 
It's not necessarily about craft. It's about who's driving it or maybe uh, the, I would say it's more like a hint as to who's driving them. And to get to that hint, you, you have to build a bridge as to where we actually came from. That's thing we've been hearing a lot about that recently. Is the biggest like bridge that needs to be built. And, and so even to build that bridge, someone like DNI, uh, Avril Haynes has to say the ET word first, just, just put that, drive that first nail in to build that bridge, you know, get the first building materials. And so that has to be said first. I hope that as the legislation goes through and this office actually comes together, that more of that bridge will be built. Um, I'm hoping that uh, then at that point, we can have an honest discussion of where we came from as humans and why they're here. They meaning our visitors, why are they here? That's something, obviously, Lou Elizondo himself has mentioned in a few recent interviews, um, most recently with uh, Kurt Jaimungo on Theories of Everything, talk that around 70,000 years ago, genetically, we got a bit of a boost. And are you alluding to the fact that by mentioning that extraterrestrial word, you're potentially going back to that point or some point in our past to then build on what happened? Did someone interfere? And at that point, is that where we as humans became the, the dominant species yeah. on the planet? I, I don't like to use the word interfere. I like to use the word enhanced. <laughs> okay. Because if that enhancement had not occurred, we would be very intelligent primates in a zoo, like what you see in a zoo. Sure. Um, I think we were enhanced uh, to be who we are. And that, that study of DNA, um, I have a teaser for all the folks who have Twitter, follow me on Twitter. Um, I will show you uh, a very interesting, um, I would say, very interesting collection of facts that on its own doesn't mean much. But when you stand back, um, it's, I, f I found it very interesting. So I'm going to talk about a company that no one knows, but I found it because I know where to look. And the officers who are the um, consultants to that company a very interesting list. So if you look at this company and what it does, and you look at a project that it did for this company, and you look at the list of officers, um, that's a company that is one to keep an eye on. And it's very difficult to find. I stumbled on it because I was looking for a specific um, combination of search terms, and I found it. Now, that's a teaser. I'm not ready to put that out yet because I'm still trying to put it together. Have you got a time scale? This is that 70,000 years ago kind of thing. Have you got a rough time scale in mind as to when you're going to put that out? Or uh, Actually, um, I'll do it after after this podcast. Uh, after this, I'm going to hit the bar. <laughs> I'm going to have, like, it's happy hour. And so well, after happy hour, I'll, I'll post it. I'll need to ramp up the questions to make those uh, happy hour drinks worth it, I think, then. Um, now, listen, uh, uh, to follow up on that question about the quality of evidence, last year I spoke to a few different witnesses to the Tic Tac event, Gary Voorhees, PJ yeah. Hughes, and Kevin yeah. Day. Um, they hinted on, on the roundtable at other agencies and organisations yeah. being able to track UAP using their systems, but, yeah. uh, especially those up and down the coast. So putting two and two together, I would imagine those would be 
agencies and organizations with sensors who would be tracking missiles coming in across bodies of water. I right. think that would make sense, yeah? Right. Yeah, um, and so uh, the uh, for UK audience uh, in, in uh, Filingdales, RAF Filingdales, there's a radar that is very similar to the radar that we use to track ballistic missile launches when they occur. Um, the two that are most interesting are um, pointed southward over the Atlantic and over the Pacific Oceans. And so they're designed to look for uh, uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles because intercontinental ballistic missiles from a ground silo um, will come over the uh, – or circumnavigate the uh, Arctic Circle to strike the U.S., but a submarine will launch uh, either from the North Atlantic or North Pacific, or most likely from the South Pacific and, and South Atlantic. And so those radars are looking down that way. And it's called PAVE PAWS, P-A-V-E-P-A-W-S. Um, and I can say it operates between 450 and 480 megahertz. Uh, it was designed specifically for uh, tracking ballistic missiles, I said. It can also track uh, satellites as well. Uh, very long range, and those those uh, they, there's there are phased array radars, and I, I don't want to get too technically wonky, but um, forget the radars that you see at the airport that are circular scanning. So you get this like dish, you know, or some yeah. lattice dish, and it goes around in circles. Those radars aren't designed to track UAPs, and so when you say the you know the air traffic controller didn't see anything on his radar, he doesn't have the right radar to look at him. Sure. So these radars are designed to look for extremely small objects traveling very fast, very fast. Um, and as fast as like 8,000 meters per second. That's how fast an uh, um, ICBM or SLBM warhead can travel. Once it pops up and comes down, that's very fast. Imagine every second you're eight kilometers away. Every second, that's very fast. And that's how those radars work, looking at very small objects. So, yes, uh, they're right. Uh, those, those sensors can look for uh, underwater um, submersible objects. That I think they call them USOs now, and they can track them. And then that information is fed into this U.S. Space Force runs it now. That information gets uh, sent to the proper uh, authorities, which in this case is the North uh, North American Air Defense, which is uh, ostensibly kind of uh, part of uh, North Northern Command, which looks at all the uh, Western Hemisphere, North North America to protect North America. So that information gets fed in uh, in that way. So the they they are able to track, and also they can then uh, correlate with uh, what we have in space, looking uh, at um, infrared sensors I mentioned before. Yep. We have the uh, Defense Support Program, which is an old sensor that's been around since 1970. It's now like um, uh, 50 years old, and it's retiring. And then there's the CBERS, the Space-Based Infrared System, which is newer and uh, more capable. And they can also look at um, the presence of that type of vehicle coming out of the water. We also have, uh, boy, um, things under the, I would say, ooh, this is 
this is where I get close to NDA. Uh, let's just say that um, if you have a submarine and you approach the United States, uh, you're not going to be hiding from the United States. So anything that uh, is under the water, um, there's a more than even chance that you've already been detected. Now, I'll just leave it at that. We'll just uh, say there's some pretty good microphones under there picking up acoustic signatures. I'm not going to say what. <laughs> uh, no, that, thank yeah. you for that, though. I appreciate you've got to tow that thing. I, I just say, you know, just just look for uh, The Hunt for Red October. Watch that movie. It's extremely well-informed. Excellent. Well, there's there's a good one for the list. We've been talking recently on the Discord chat about a few different movies like The Abyss and Event Horizon. So there's yeah. a new one for you, The Hunt for Red October. Not yeah, necessarily well-known, but it's UFO. Water. Yeah, mm, that's pretty good. I'll make sure that's on the list this weekend. Um, listen, John, recently people are talking about the idea of groups of future humans competing over timelines due to potential impending cataclysms. Do you think controlled dissemination, as mentioned, is a required catalyst for change? Is the phenomenon itself potentially ramping up and influencing disclosure? Uh, that's a tough one to, to answer. Um, when you get into like the time element, it's... I'm not a physicist, so I can't even describe how that could occur. Um, I would say this. Um, I know enough that um, I don't think in terms of time travel, because um, I think of terms of temporal and spatial displacement under the influence of a lot of gravity. So you have to have three things. Uh, you have to have gravity first and a lot of gravity, something with a strong gravitational field to be able to displace or bend time and space, mm -hmm. temporal and spatial. And that's the way that occurs. Now, as far as like other advanced technology, advanced beings be able to use that type of physical phenomenon. And it's just physics that we're talking about. Um, uh, I don't know how they would do that. Um, but having said that, um, there is some talk, and I don't know for sure, but there is some talk that part of the message is that um, we need to prevent some catastrophe from happening. And the government's really reluctant. If they know this, they will probably not talk about it because you know, that spins up people and gets them afraid. Um, it's it's probably they'll solve the problem before they even mention the problem, you know. So, so yeah. they'll do the solution and then say, "Oh, by the way, you know, we we stop this from happening." So I don't know how to how to answer that. Um, I myself, um, I believe the message is about um, doing things for our planet to heal our planet, um, doing things for ourselves to heal our divisions amongst humans as a way of progressing forward. I think that is the message I'm hoping for. Um, that's the message I get through downloads. You talk to experiencers, um, some, many of them have the same kind of message. Channelers especially have that message to, to bring back from those who they channeled. But I don't know about, uh, you know, like time travel and, you know, government interaction with time travel. If that's where you're going, I, I have no idea about that. 
No, I think you're right about the idea of time travel, but you tend to watch a Hollywood movie and you jump forward or you jump back. And I think no. you're right. When when it comes to this phenomenon, it's not necessarily the same thing. And I am no physicist, but we can only think of time in terms of being a human and it goes on a clock forward, it goes back. Right. These things could be skipping all over and you hear right. about maybe another phenomena or entity or species are seeing time as a long exposure. And what we see as a second, they see as a minute. So yeah, a totally different uh, understanding. Yeah, in our human mind, we look at space as something we can measure, and it's yeah. linear. We look at time as something that we can measure, and it's linear. Um, I think uh, if you look at time differently, in, in the quantum sense, and by the way, quantum doesn't mean huge; it means very tiny. Yeah, if you look at units of time, units of space is very tiny. Um, uh, that can be somewhat. Um, I hate to use the word manipulated but somehow um, uh, used in a way that, that can facilitate travel uh, in a nonlinear fashion, um, I think that might be the next big thing in, in like quantum physics to discover. I mean, they can see that in a linear accelerator. Uh, for example, you know, they can produce subatomic particles, and they can see some of them like going back in time. They can see antiparticles, like here's the particle and here's the antiparticle, and they, they destroy each other, or they can see particles that seemingly can't stay in our three-dimensional space, and they disappear somewhere. Yeah. So they, they haven't explained it, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I don't have a good answer for you, and I'm not a, I, I am definitely not a physicist. Uh, but let me say one thing. Neil deGrasse Tyson, love the guy, smart guy. He thinks of everything in a linear fashion. That's why he yeah. can't accept it. He just cannot accept anything that might be nonlinear. And uh, if he knows uh, what's going on, like if he's been briefed, let's say, by government officials and said, okay, here's what's really going on, um, but we want you to say this, um, I'm very disturbed by that. I'm disturbed by anyone who's briefed and then signs up to, and with authority, with scientific authority, and signs up to uh, debunking everything in spite of the fact that they know the truth. Oh, I am very, very, I don't like, I don't like that at all. I think when you talk about those control rods, I would expect Neil deGrasse Tyson changing his tune one day to be one of those when he starts coming out with a different line of conversation, which I think would be much welcomed because I used to be quite a big fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson and I listened to his podcast a few years ago. But since I got more involved in this subject and doing this podcast, and you hear his opinions and the derogatory way he talks about the subject, it it just put me off him. And as a sci- I, I struggle to see why any scientist would not be fascinated by this particular subject, because it would be the greatest scientific discovery ever. It's it's the greatest one possible. Well, I have to believe that there are scientists working on this. Uh, and, of course, there there's that organization, SCU. Yep. Um, and they, they are very science-based. Um the government has its own scientists. Um, I bring up uh, like Eric, uh, Dr. Eric uh, W. Davis, for example, and uh, Dr. Hal Putoff and others who are looking at it, Jack Vallee, um, looking at it. Uh, I, there are scientists who are looking at this and taking it seriously. And I was uh, most heartened that, and I used uh, the, the SETI Institute, for example, is kind of changing its tune about um, the extraterrestrial presence and the fact that, you know, this they, they might actually 
they're looking for extraterrestrials way out there. And they're kind of thinking, okay, maybe we need to look a little closer to home. Uh, and yeah. so that's an organization that for a long time, they were thinking linearly of, you know, sending signals out and waiting. I mean, she sent a signal out. Um, then, you know, it, it takes like tens of years, is it like four or five years to get to, maybe three to four years to get to the nearest star system? You know, and you, you're going to wait a long time. And so other star systems are like tens of light years away. You're going to be waiting a long time for an answer to come back. But now they're saying it might be something closer. I so, think with, with SETI, it seems a little bit like they're the, they're the guy who was standing on the shore putting the message in a bottle and hoping for something would come back. And maybe someone's come up and handed them a cell phone. And that's why they've changed their tune. So hopefully <laughs> that's what's happened there. Hope uh, so. John, I want to ask, you mentioned previously on an interview um, a little bit about spoon bending, which oh, is yes. a very interesting subject. And right. it's Jack Houck. Oh, yes. It? Yes. yes um, can you speak a little bit about that uh, and to your knowledge, how it may have been done? Well, uh, the best source of that is Melinda Leslie. She's up in Sedona, Arizona. She was a good friend of Jack Houck. Uh, let me explain how I know about Jack Houck. Um the CIA had a contract with his company, uh, McDonald Douglas, um, and it was in Huntington Beach, California, and they provided us with analytic service. Uh, uh, McDonald Douglas, these folks that worked for Jack, who's a senior executive, uh, had a, a key role in uh, designing and building the United States anti-ballistic missile system called Safeguard. So they knew about how those radars worked and how those uh, ABM interceptors worked. And so we were looking at the equivalent back in the Soviet Union. The U.S. got rid of its anti-ballistic missile system. It's still like there, but it's not operational. Uh, at uh, in North Dakota, I think was where it was located at one of the Dakotas. Um, but but we were looking at the, the Soviet equivalent of that. And so we're looking at radars. Um, and this one particular radar is the one that was very unusual. It's an S-band radar. In the middle of S-band is three gigahertz. I just want to let all the radar people out there know that you've heard three gigahertz before in the context of UFOs, UAPs. That seems to be a frequency um, that has been associated in the past with UFOs and UAPs, three gigahertz. Um, and so this radar worked around that range. And so it does what it's supposed to do. I mean, it, it you know, the, the Soviets will launch missiles to test them. They're testing the warheads, the reentry vehicles, and these radars will track them. Well, this particular radar is very unusual. It's, it's got a very unusual waveform. And um, as well as, and in fact, this radar is almost, the, the Soviets called it a, I think they call it a video radar. Uh, the words to that effect gets lost in translation. Uh, right. This radar could see 0.6 meters resolution. So imagine a radar signal that can actually uh, detect something and provide a return back to the radar that you can visually see uh, with 0.6 meters resolution per pixel. Um, that's better than like you get the one meter per pixel using Google Earth. That's even better than what you get on Google Earth and yeah. Google Maps. So this is a very sophisticated radar. So um, long story short, this radar was, uh, other than uh, tracking their missile tests, this radar was tracking something. 
that would go through various uh, detection, uh, acquisition, and tracking waveforms, that it was something in the sky that it was tracking. Now, we just thought it was a test mode. And so we took this, um, this the uh, our analysis and our signals, and we gave McDonnell Douglas uh, the information about it. And so his folks analyzed this radar that was tracking something up in the sky. Um, but in terms of spoon bending, Jack Houck was also very interested in the metaphysical and paranormal. And he introduced CIA officers, our, our analysts who worked with him about spoon bending. And so a lot of officers went to his house to bend spoons and they all came back saying, yeah, we bent a spoon. I didn't go. And I regret to this day <laughs> that I didn't go uh, to bend spoons with Jack Howe. Um, but they went there to, to bend spoons. And so uh, that's the story about Jack Houck. But for the radar, later, um, as the Soviet Union fell and we got uh, more open source about what this radar was doing, the Soviets admitted, um, the Russians rather, after the Soviet Union admitted that this radar was designed to track aerospace anomalies. That was one of its functions. And so we knew something was up there tracking aerospace anomalies up there. And it's just uh, interesting that Jack Houck, uh, uh, with his association with the intelligence community, uh, was also interested in, in being exposed. So that might be a non sequitur. That's my Jack Houck story. For more information about Jack Houck, you really need to talk to Melinda Leslie in, in Sedona. Uh, she's an experiencer, and she has an interesting story to tell as well. About I know her. Melinda. Yeah, and it's yeah. probably probably long overdue. She's on the podcast at some point, yes. so that might be a good prompt to get her on. Yes, uh, John. Now we've got a lot of listener questions to get through, but I just want to ask you uh, one or two things before we get there, just to get make the most of the time that we have left. Yeah. Now, in your opinion, in what you have gained from a knowledge point of view, or those official or unofficial conversations mm-hmm. from the point of view of the superpowers, the United States, Russia, and China. Mm-hmm. Do you think any or all of these have retrieved crashed craft? And of of those, who do you think has managed to best reverse engineer anything? Um, I have never had any official confirmation about any foreign reversals of uh, crashed craft. Having said that... Um, I would say that the Soviet Union or Russia probably has had the most success because they developed some very uh, advanced aerospace uh, technology, more of a terrestrial origin. And they are very advanced in that. And and like um, the Sukhoi aircraft, they're amazing. The SU-30, 35, 57 series of Sukhoi aircraft, they're amazing. Um, the Chinese are um, maybe a generation behind, also very amazing, but a generation behind. And the Russians have just had a tremendous impact on um, uh, keeping the U.S. military on its toes, just keeping up with them. Um, it, and people say, well, they stole it. <laughs> That's uh, giving them no respect whatsoever for their own uh, aerospace engineering. They're very, very good. In fact, you know, they got Sputnik up before we did. They got mm-hmm. a satellite before we did. 
uh, to develop a very good uh, missile back in the early 50s, the SS-1, which we call the SCUD. Um, and while we were still like tinkering around with the, the uh, copies of the uh, A4, or what we would call the V2, uh, shooting off whatever we recovered and trying to reverse engineer that, they actually just threw that away and just built their own. Um, and so they're, they're very advanced. And um, I would say this, if anything, um, I would suggest that uh, don't assume that if there are metamaterials or crash vehicles that they all came from the United States. Um, there was a period in time when the Soviet Union fell and as the Russian Federation was still trying to organize, organize itself as, um, as a country uh, that everything was for sale. People were like selling everything and uh, it gave an opportunity for the U.S. government to pick up stuff uh, from them. Um, and so uh, we were able to pick up a lot of, uh, a lot of equipment. And so my theory, I can't prove it. Uh, my personal theory based on informed speculation is that some of the metamaterials and bits and pieces of craft may have come from Russian sources. And I'll leave it at that. No, that's great. Informed speculation is always nice to hear as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. John, why do you think all of this that's happening now is happening now? Why, why is now the right time for us to be having congressional, you know, uh, movement movement within the Senate, you know, bills being put forward, the talk of the subject at the UN, mainstream scientists getting involved? Why now? What's your gut feeling? July 2nd, 2022 is the 75th anniversary of Mr. and Mrs. Wilmot eyewitnessing the Roswell craft overfly their home. 75th anniversary. July 8th is the 75th anniversary of the infamous uh, Roswell Daily Record newspaper article announcing that the Roswell Army Air Force Base um, has a flying saucer in its possession. It's the 75th year. And if anything, maybe they want to cap it off saying, okay, enough is enough. We'll, we'll come out with some semblance, more semblance of the truth. We are able to reveal more. The other thing uh, to keep in mind is Perhaps there's information in official channels. Again, I don't know, but this is a downloaded thing. And if you ask experiencers, they'll pretty much say something similar, that there might be an event um, that will require an intervention from others, uh, from our visitor friends, to help prevent. And it could be some solar event, whatever it is, we might need some help. And in order to get that help, we might need to reveal the presence of them so that they can help us. So that's one aspect of it. Um, I just, I feel like there's something coming. I just, I just uh, feel that and, and deep inside me. And I can't prove it because, you know, it's a feeling I have. It's a belief that I have. And it's the most difficult thing to believe, uh, to prove is a belief. And I can't prove it. I don't have any documents saying this will happen. But it's a personal belief that I hold um, that that might be one of the major reasons why this is on a quickening scale. 
that is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was wet. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should see because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they be, I think it's you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jake? Thank you.